0: This afternoon, we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. And once again, very centrally, in such a deep way, the Buddha's own insights, his teaching, the whole Buddhist tradition, runs against the grain. Certainly, and especially against the grain of modernity. The notion that while we're still alive, we could be free of suffering, is nowhere to be found, I think, as far as I know, in any aspect of modern culture. That is, from a Darwinian perspective, my very dear and respected friend, um, Paul Ekman, commented that um, all of our emotions are adaptive, and therefore they're hardwired, where they're in. So, and one of our emotions is m- misery, suffering, mental suffering. It's an emotion. And we need it. We're biologically adapted for it. It's hardwired. It's genetic. It's live with it. But there is freedom, and that's dying. Then you don't have your genes anymore. You don't have a brain anymore. So all you have to do is wait, and then suffering does come to an end. But you don't get to enjoy it because, of course, there's no consciousness. So there's one. And then there's an interesting one. From something much more recent, but very, very influential in the 20th century, now the 21st century, traces back to Freud. A lot, a number of my, I have lots and lots of friends who are psychologists, and some of them like to think that he's dead. But his spirit lives on. (laughs) I mean, the influence of this man is really quite terrific, even for those people who don't respect him. They thought, oh no, forget it, forget it. Very strong. And here's one of them. Here's a direct quote from him to a person who, one of his clients, one of his patients, who complained to him saying, look, um, my, I'm paraphrasing here and then I'll quote him directly, but the 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 patient's plaint was, look, I have all this misery, this grief and so forth, and it's all locked into my past, and whatever you tell me, you can't get me out of my past, and so why are you telling me anything at all? Because.'" I carry my past with me, and it makes me miserable. So what do you got? Basically that, it was a little bit a griping. And Freud responded to him, much will be, you will be convinced that much will be gained if we, that is in our psychoanalysis, I psychoanalyzing you, much will be gained if we succeed in transforming your hysterical misery into common unhappiness with a mental life that has been restored to health." its a very, very important phrasing. Brilliant man, and he chooses chooses his words carefully, as many brilliant people do. "...with a mental life that has been restored to mental health, you'll be better armed against the unhappiness." So don't expect the unhappiness to go away, just expect to be better armed against it. So I think that's representative of an enormous amount of thinking within modern psychotherapy my psychoanalysis is that and I read just recently a person who wrote this book on Buddhism and psychotherapy that look you've got a subconscious the subconscious is just teeming with impulses that Buddhists call mental afflictions craving, libido, hatred animal instincts and so forth and so just you know they're just not going to go away and suffering's not going to go away that's the bad news the good news is you will die and then they go away but you don't get to experience. So it's kind of like going deep asleep. I mean, it's really nice, but you're not there. And then there's a Christian. That's the other major dominant one in in our modern Western society. And once again, there's not a whisper of any hope in mainstream, current non contemplative Christianity that there's going to be any freedom of suffering in this lifetime. But there is. You have to die first. And so the difference between the materialist, the Darwinian, Freud both of them who completely rejected religion, is they tell you the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering and its causes, occurs at death, but it's going to be like going into non-lucid sleep, whereas the Christians say you get the cessation of suffering and its causes at death, but you get to be lucid. You get to enjoy it. It's It's different. But both of them say, you know as long as you're embodied, tough luck. And just try to move away from hysterical unhappiness to ordinary unhappiness. So the Buddha's premise that we can actually be free of unhappiness in this lifetime is, I think, without parallel, which means it goes totally against the grain. And there are quite a a few psychologists who like Buddhism that are just throwing out the third noble truth and said, ain't true. And then they come up with all kinds of reasons to throw out what the Buddha said about this and then substitute psychotherapy for Buddhism and tell you Buddhism is really about coping with your unhappiness rather than trying to eradicate it. So they're, how do you say misrepresenting the Buddha, Buddha Dharma in an absolutely funda- fundamental way. As we arouse this yearning to be free of suffering for ourselves and others, what is really crucial here, and really cuts to the core of the Buddhist teachings, is that suffering does not come from outside, and I'm speaking especially of mental suffering. If you throw a dart at someone and it punctures their skin, then In a way, even though the dart wasn't made of suffering, when it punctures the skin, suffering will happen. It will happen to an arhat. Ooh, that hurt. That did not feel like throwing a flower at me. You know, they're not anesthetized. They experience the pain differently, nevertheless. So in a way, mental, physical suffering, you can impose from outside. You can get from disease and so forth. So I'm saying, I'm sorry, but sticks and stones can hurt my bones, that kind of thing. But in terms of mental suffering, it's a simple point, but it's so easy to overlook. It's so easy to, to, to b- believe that something happens from the outside and therefore I am compelled to suffer. I'm compelled to suffer. This tragedy, this adversity happened. I have no choice. Now I have to suffer. Well, not true. When I think of Yang Tanama one of my own teachers, 22 years, his big retreat, I don't know how many years he had retreat, how intensive meditation could be before he was incarcerated, but his big retreat was twenty-two years long, that's a long retreat, right? In a concentration camp. So he had his cell. A pretty intense retreat. But saying during those twenty-two years my mind was had far greater sense of peace than most people on the outside. So what was imposed from outside was almost unimaginably horrific. What happened to these poor monks and lamas and so forth in these concentration camps and still does. It's still happening. Uh, it's, it's, it, 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 it it makes the imagination almost wither like pouring acid. And yet he didn't suffer. You know, and yet was able to maimpa- maintain peace of mind. So to have that type of sisu, to have that even in intellectual knowledge, this is possible. And then to say, okay, now where's the dharma? Because the whole difference between Our mental happiness simply following the course of external events, including physical health. Oh, I'm in bad health. Oh, I'm miserable. Oh, now I'm in good health. Okay, now I can be happy again. I was thinking of little kids, like sometimes my little grandson, especially when he's even younger than he is now. But you've all seen little kids. Sometimes they'll fall. They go, ah. And they're kind of like this. (laughs) Like, I didn't like that. And then they'll look at their knee, and they'll see blood, ah, and then they start freaking out, the, the, the mental pain really hits when they see blood, I'm going to die, you know, before then it was just grumpy, I like. I didn't like that, ah. <laughs> so, so of course there's little kids, right, there was a, there, that is the pain before and after, the physical pain before and after seeing the blood, is exactly the same, Mental suffering, oh, a big compound, massively increases, right? Overlays. And so, as mental suffering can exacerbate physical suffering, make it much more unbearable, the absence of mental suffering can actually make physical suffering far more bearable. So, two ways the suffering can go away as we arouse compassion. One is wishing for ourselves and others, may the adversity pass, may it be be averted. If there is a diagnosis coming up, Paul Ekman, again my dear friend, he had a diagnosis coming up, some problem with his throat. It was very public, so I can say, but um, could be cancer in his throat, as I recall. There was something there, some tumor, some growth. It could be benign, which means a minor thing. Could be malignant, not minor at all. So one's waiting. One's waiting for the diagnosis. Well, some of you have been in similar situations, or you know people who have been in similar situations. It, any such person, ourselves or others, what would we hope for, as we arouse compassion for such a person? May the diagnosis be good. Of course, may be good but of that over that we have so little control what if the diagnosis is bad then may you experience it in a different way that's where the freedom is we pray that the hedonic misery doesn't happen but should it happen then we have a second line of defense okay now adversity has come now may you find the inner resources hopefully you've been cultivating them for year after year after year before big adversity strikes The great wisdom of Dharma is, as we're transforming all circumstances into Dharma, find the little ones, find the little adversities, the mosquito bite, the little disappointment, the no ice cream, the cloaked ice cream bin. Okay, I can handle it. (laughs) Disappointment mounting. uh, Okay, I'm a Dharma practitioner. Okay, watermelon it is. Or maybe pineapple. (laughs) I'm working on that one. I'm working on, but I'm doing well. You see, not one tear is shed when I see the ice cream bin covered. You watch my eyes, no tears. (laughs) I'm a macho dharma practitioner. Yeah, some of you are not so impressed, but I'm I'm really working at it. So we take the little ones, the covered ice cream, the mosquito bite, the disappointment there, we transform it, transform it. And then like being able to digest harder and harder to digest food, then being able to develop through strength, through developing sisu, developing this semshuk, this strength of heart, developing the ability to transform more and more and more adversity so that if we should find ourselves something even remotely like what young Janamachi found himself in, suddenly you're in a concentration camp for an indefinite period, 22 years, I'm trying to think, where was, I? where was I when I was 38? I was helping to lead a one-year retreat, that was a long time ago. That was 1988. Wow, so much has happened since then. And I try to imagine that all filled with concentration camp. Boy, that's a long time. But he came in was so well prepared that that was his retreat instead of merely being anguish, misery, why me, oh Lord, I didn't deserve this, I hate these people, and so forth. Practicing Dharma, helping the other inmates in the concentration camp. He was known for that. He was there as their Lama. So as we arouse compassion for ourselves and others, the outer line of defense, may the adversity vanish. Certainly, why not? But if that isn't possible, karma ripening, whether it's Moggallana Buddha being beaten to death, it's, it's whoever it is, having to get leprosy, whatever it is, Okay, if the outer ramparts are broken down, karma is ripening, then may we arise and be free of some suffering. It's hard to imagine, but it comes through training. Realization of bodhicitta, very powerful for that, and most powerful, perhaps, realization of emptiness. If you're ever in the midst of a, of a lucid dream, and you want to run a little experiment, interview the other people in a lucid dream, and ask them, Do you think it's possible to be free of suffering? (laughs) If you're lucid, if you're really lucid, and there's all kinds of gradations of lucidity, but if you're really, really lucid, so that you can have your body sawed in half and just kind of chuckle and, you know, it's just rainbows, rainbows in all directions, there's only rainbows, it's just appearances to the mind, what on earth could possibly help harm you, right? as if you are deeply accomplished in settling the mind in its natural state. And whatever appearances arise, you have that non-conceptual certainty. Nothing can harm your mind. How can a rainbow harm your mind? So whether a lucid dream, whether being really adept in settling the mind, you know, in a very, very lucid dream, you know you can be, in this dream, in this dream, you can be free, totally free of anxiety. What's to be afraid of? Of mental suffering? What can possibly harm you? Even physical suffering, what can really harm you? But mental suffering, give me a break. In a really lucid dream, what can happen? Mata go, you go, ha, right back. (laughs) Whatever it is, you know, nothing. But interview the other people in your non-lucid dream and ask, what do you think? Can you be free of suffering? You might be surprised at their answer. I thought it might be helpful to make one more distinction not directly related to compassion, but tying together morning and afternoon. Especially as we gradually anticipate, you know, where we'll be after this, don't get fixated on but once in a while should it come up. And just later on, just sowing these seeds, that in the course of our meditative practice, as you've all experienced by now, on occasion certain nyam will arise. Unusual transient psychosomatic experiences, and some may be really in the, in the way of real meditative experiences. I mean, some medit- that is not just a weird feeling and a bit of misery and anxiety and so forth and so on, but, oh, that was, that was really in the flow. That was unprecedented serenity. Ah, that was, there was some real bliss coming through. Ah, the mind was so clear. And so other, other experiences may break through as you're practicing and practicing both the four measurables as well as the shamatha in all of the forms And they come and go, these experiences, they come and go. They're aroused, they're catalyzed by your meditative practice. Then they come and go. Those are called nyam, including beautiful nyam of being at ease, of relaxation, stillness, vividness, bliss. All of these are nyam, right? They're nyam. Wide, wide range of nyam, almost inconceivably wide range of nyam. And they come and go, very, very transient and they really turned into nice memories. I mean, the nicer ones turned into nice memories, the other ones turned into not so nice memories. And then beyond yam, there's something in Tibetan called topa, and is realization. And that is some direct, immediate experiential knowledge. It could be of a wide variety. This is in the realm of vipassana, especially, but topa, realization, could be a realization of the substrate consciousness, it could be a realization of some, some degree of realization of identitylessness, or the emptiness of the mind could even be some glimmering of rikpa and so forth. There can be some realization. But Dujum Lingba, I'm almost certain it was in Vajra Essence or one of the other texts by him that I've translated, he says, even realization is like a patch. It comes off. So the realization was authentic. Did you actually gain some insight into emptiness, non-self, impermanence, the nature of dukkha, and so forth? Did you, was it just imagination, fancy? Was it whimsy, some just hunch? Or did you actually have realization? And it may be realization. And even though you know it, it can fade. And then you have a, rem- you have a memory of having known, but it's no longer there. Sharp. Sharp. So even memory, can even topa can fade. And this is where shamatha really comes in. So I've known Dharma practitioners for a long time, I mean, 40 years, pretty long time. And I've met many people who've had tokpa, realization coming up from Zen practice, Tibetan practice, Theravada, Vipassana, Shamatha, and so forth, where it was really quite something, I mean, really, something like high point of a life, some breakthrough, some insight. And then in so many cases, it's just a memory of having an insight. Wow, it's really fantastic. I wish I knew the way back. It was like being wandering around in a vast, vast desert. And I found this oasis three and a half years ago on a Tuesday at two o'clock. It was a great oasis. Oh, I wish I knew where it was. You know, no way back. Don't know how it got there. Don't know how to stay. Don't know how to get back. Shamatha. That's where the fusion of shamatha with Vipassana to go from nyam, meditative experience, to realization, to what is called in Tibetan, deng topa. Deng topa. Deng means confidence. Topa means to achieve. Deng topa. Sometimes ning topa. You achieve confidence. And this means like, now you own it. It's not going away. That is, it's, it's so deeply inside, it's so absorbed, that you cannot look at reality in a way, contrary to the realization. Now all you remember is you have a memory of what it used to be like to be deluded, what it used to be be like to get it wrong, to not realize. But you only remember, yeah, yeah, boy, that that stunk, you know. And then you're back to your own realization. So that's where shamatha really comes in. Without shamatha, Deng Top, it just doesn't happen. Doesn't happen on any account. Doesn't happen for impermanence, dukkha, non self, emptiness, rikpa. Just doesn't happen. And it's so obvious why. The mind goes tipsy topsy. The mind just, just turns over. Excitation, laxity, it doesn't have the stability. It can't hold realization. Tips over, and then all the realization spills out. And you can cry about it, but you needed a vas that would stay upright, stable, and clear. So, to end this point, I wanted to tell a very sad story. At least it would be sad if it were not fictitious. Of it course, it's not that sad. But it's about a little boy. And actually, not that little boy. He was like a youngish boy. But he had psychosis very deeply ingrained psychosis. I mean, really delusional. Uh, and it probably traced back to his early childhood because this little boy was convinced that he was a kernel of corn, a little grain of corn. Probably traced back to his childhood, being raised in a cornfield and stalkers all around, corn stalkers, And always thought that, you know, since he was surrounded by corn, that he was actually a kernel of corn. Whatever it was, it was some awful traumatic childhood event that persuaded him that he actually was not a human being, not a boy, but a little kernel of corn. And his, and his parents lived out on a farm, you know, with corn. And so they were very troubled for the son, and they really wanted to get him to be healed. And so they sent him to mental asylum. I mean, this little boy can't function. He thinks he's a kernel of corn. And he sent him to mental asylum, mental rehabilitation center, and to get some real intensive therapy with wise psychoanalysts, psychotherapists, medication, anxiety, and psychosis medication. And he was there for months and months, brought all the skill, all the ability they could. Finally, he, the doctors release him, send him back to his parents, your, your child is cured. He, he no longer thinks he's, a, he's, he's fine. We've, we've given him lots of therapy. We've, we've drummed it out of him. He knows he's no, no longer Colonel of Corn. And so little boy comes back. The parents are a little bit, little bit uneasy, like, are you really cured? Little boy comes, like, yeah, okay, Okay, little Johnny, Oh, do you think you're a colonel of corn? Nah, I'm a boy. Uh, parents are very relieved. Oh, good, good. So, every, so, But they're watching him because he was really psychotic before. And they're watching him, and everything seems normal. And then one day, little Johnny goes out to play outside the farmhouse. And then he comes running back in, slams the door behind him. He's trembling. He's freaking out. He's obviously having a major panic attack. Oh, totally freaking out. And the parents now, oh, all their old memory. Oh, Johnny, what happens? You don't think you're a kernel of corn, do you? And little Johnny says, no, I don't. But that chicken out there doesn't know that. (laughs) It's not that sad. (laughs) So the moral of the story is Johnny did realize that he was not a kernel of corn, but he had not achieved shamatha. So when the chicken came, out came I'm a kernel of corn, and it's gonna gobble me up. Hola, so let's find a comfortable position. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states with mindfulness of breathing for a little while. Now let's arouse the attention to focus on our own condition, our own situation here, our existence, and to the range of suffering, of blatant suffering of body and mind to which we are vulnerable in the present, the near future, the distant future. reality of the suffering of suffering. Drawing on this most profound impulse, perhaps our deepest impulse of caring Caring for ourselves, caring for others, arouse the spirit of caring, manifesting in the yearning, the aspiration, may I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Every in-breath arouses yearning to be free, free of externally imposed adversity, free of the grasping and reification that enables adversity to catch us in its grip. with each in-breath, imagine becoming free. Even in the midst of the vicissitudes of life, of aging, sickness, and death, and all the vicissitudes that come during the course of a life, and what follows. Imagine being free of grasping, and therefore being free wish imagine that darkness of suffering like a cloud, being siphoned in and utterly extinguished with each in breath in this inexhaustible source of light, the orb of light at your heart. Let your attention rove. You may attend to loved ones. You may attend to strangers. Attend to those who are suffering, who face adversity, physical suffering, mental suffering. Attend closely. Let their reality become your reality. And as they wish to be free, Arouse the same aspiration within yourself, and with each in-breath, practice as before. Let's continue practicing now in silence. Place all appearances and let your awareness rest in its own nature. Or lasso. Fair number of pieces of mail today. So, a practical one first. Um, I'm doing subtly in the mind in its natural state when there are no thoughts arising, and I try to observe the substrate consciousness. I find I'm slipping into awareness of awareness. What should I do then? Okay, somebody answer that question. The person is practicing incorrectly. It's no big deal. I mean, that happens. I'm not, I'm not upset. But the practice is uh, that was the practice is incorrect. What should you be attending to? The substrate, yeah, not the substrate consciousness. When there are no thoughts arising, and I try to observe, well, always come back. This has to be memorized. Otherwise, then you'll you'll go off on a tangent and you'll never know it. And you just keep on going and going and going and then you'll never achieve shamatha unless you're practicing correctly. And so we just come back to the simple, basic core theme. What's the object of mindfulness for settling the mind in its natural state? Yeah. So what's the object of of mindfulness when settling the mind in its natural state, when nothing's arising? Space of the mind yeah not the substrate consciousness substrate consciousness is not the space of the mind. I hope that's incredibly clear by now it's not the substrate consciousness is subjective it's not a field it's not a space it's not a content it's not something appearing to awareness it's that which is aware right so you've what what this person did was and again this is just a just a mistake so i'm please, nobody think i 'm upset it's, it's just this is how you will learn by making mistakes and getting them corrected. What this person did was suddenly there were no thoughts, and then switched tracks and stopped settling the mind in its natural state and began practicing awareness of awareness, which is not a terrible thing, but that means you're no longer settling the mind in its natural state. So what do you do? You keep you, So now I'll answer the question, but do the practice correctly. Settling the mind in its natural state, you can't see any thoughts arising. Then focus on the space of the mind and focus intently. Focus clearly, discerningly, To the point that you are recognizing you're seeing something more than a mere absence. You're seeing something more than a mere absence. An absence of thoughts, images, and so forth. So, for example, I could be thinking elephants. Elephants. Any elephants? Any elephants? No elephants. I just perceived an absence of elephants. Okay? No elephants in the room. So if you're just looking for elephants, that's if you're single-pointedly focusing on elephants, except for there aren't any, then you get a mere absence of elephants. Okay, it's called a megat, a simple negation, a sheer absence of elephants. Okay? But here, there is a sheer absence of thoughts, but that doesn't mean you no longer have an object of mindfulness. If your sole object were thoughts, and then there weren't any, then you'd be attending to the absence of thoughts. But here, there's a field in which those thoughts appear, from which they emerge, in which they're present, into which they dissolve, and you're attending to that field. Attend closely, and then attend gently, softly, in a relaxed mode, a bit more intently. Tweak it, and that is refine your attention and see, might there be something there that's either so brief, that's so flickering, so brief in its coming and going that I wasn't aware of it, Enhance temporal vividness or also enhance qualitative vividness. Might there be something there in that vacuity, in that space of the mind? And I just wasn't looking closely enough, but if I watch very closely, is there really absolutely nothing going on in that space? Or is there something going on? Observe closely. That's how you enhance the vividness of attention. Olasso. About the use of antidotes and introspection, I have the feeling that in most of my sessions, I'm spending too much time applying these, and I don't know if I'm doing the practice correctly. That's um, yeah, very good, very good question. Uh, Christina. Um, these are all good questions. And, and making a mistake is really good, too. I, I tend to learn more vividly and re- remember better if I make a mistake and it corrected, rather than never making the mistake and then just carry on. But when His Holiness has corrected me, I think I remember every single time. Oh, wow, that was helpful. Big booming voice. No, not like that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> A very loving, but there's no question about it. You got that one wrong, Buster. OK, so antidotes and introspection, sure. This is internal. There's, there's, that is, there's not any words that I can tell you that will then enable you to do just the right amount from now on. There aren't any words like that. It's internal and it's finding internally how much is too little so for example with excitation if the introspection is too infrequent you know just once in a while checking in then the then excitation will cap- capture you and take you off for 30 seconds 40 seconds a minute longer well that's too long introspection should have got it much earlier than that right and likewise, laxity, dullness, if you're kind of just spacing out, and many seconds go by, you don't even notice. Oh, introspection, you're fired. <laughs> you know? Next, you know, get a temp. <laughs> you know? Get somebody else who's not slacking on the job so much. And so it can easily be too little, and then it, the whole practice is just sloppy. And sloppy, as Sonka pointed out, sloppy can be a habit especially if we have long sessions, very easy to have sloppy habit, and then, it, and then any habit is difficult to break. So we don't want sloppy habit, on the one hand. On the other hand, if we're like a, an over-attentive parent, always checking in, always nagging, 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 always eh, like that, then there's no relaxation. We can't just get smoothly into the practice because we're always checking up and checking up, and every time we come in, again, orthogonally, kind of interrupting the flow of mindfulness, it disrupts it a little bit. Like, oh, how are you doing? Oh, am I, is my face nice and loose and relaxed? Oh, how's the breathing? Oh, how's my posture? Is there laxity? Is there dullness? If it's too much, it's going to make us jittery, uneasy. And we'll never get into that nice flow of practice. So those are the two extremes. And then how do you find the middle way? By bumping into the extremes less and less and less. Okay? So it's internal. You have to find for yourself. And then... That, narrow, that middle way will get narrower and narrower as you continue, as you find, oh, that was a little bit too much, oh, a little bit too little, oh, a little bit too much, until eventually you don't need it at all. Welcome to stage eight. <laughs> no more introspection, no more antidotes. Good. us p- something private. Okay, here's, uh, so here's a bit more theoret- theoretical one, and it's, good, it's a good question, but what I'd like to do first, questions, especially anything coming up about the four measurables. Uh, it's easy to kind of regard them as being secondary in this retreat, and they have been. I mean, it's not primarily a four measurable retreat where we're spicing it up with shamatha once in a while. At the same time, as we're gradually coming Towards the end of our experience here, uh, the more you have cultivated those four immeasurables, the more you will find me, from your own experience after you 've left here that when I say these are your four best friends, I really meant it when you 're out there in the world engaging with all the stuff that life throws at you at times you may feel shamata you 've got to be kidding i 'm on the phone i 've got to answer i 've got to enter twenty emails and I only have fifteen minutes. Shamata, give me a break. I just got to get through this because I got to do this. Mindfulness uh, mindfulness of panting. (laughs) All right. And so, especially in all of your engagements with your fellow sentient beings, four immeasurables, is really what can transmute these engagements uh, into Dharma. And your mind can actually become Dharma. So, any questions? We'll start with Darlene. Yes. But, But wait until the microphone comes, if you will.
1: Uh, I think I'm going to ask a question that you've already answered once, but um, I need to hear it again. Uh, what books are available so that when we go back home yeah. that we could get to help us uh, remember the f- uh, four immeasurables and to go over them and check them you know, and make sure that we've got it right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, I wish there were a whole bunch of them. I mean, the four measurables are so enormously important, and they are the very, the very breath of life of bodhicitta. Without them, bodhicitta is just a, a chimera. It's not. It's it's just a happy thought. Um, there's my book, The Four Measurables. Um, Sharon Salzberg has written a book. I've not, I have to confess. I have not read it. She's a very lovely person. I haven't I confess. I haven't read read her book. But she has a book on metta, and I believe it covers the other measurables too, doesn't it? Anybody read it? I think it does. Um, I have a paper. I, I, can, I can send... I, I have a PDF... Uh, no, it's a, it's a word file of uh, Nyanapona Kitera. I have two. I have two word files. One is teaching uh, on the four measurables and the four greats, the four great compassion and so forth. I believe it is from Lone Chemba. I think it's probably... It's somebody else's translation. It's not mine. But it's from the Nyingma tradition. I have that. And then I have a piece straight from the Theravada tradition from Jnanaponikatera, a very, very big scholar, German monkey, passed away some years ago. I met him in 1981 in Sri Lanka. He wrote a nice piece. So, especially if somebody reminds me, I'll have those sent off to, I guess, Shamata. Oh, I know the shamata.org uh, site is down right now. What we're doing is we're taking all four of the websites my personal website, Santa Barbara Institute, shamata.org, and the CEB website, and we're just upgrading all of them. And so they're all getting a major facelift and radical makeover. And so, so I'm not surprised one's down. But they'll be up again soon. We have a wonderful staff working on this and a fantastic man overseeing it all and offering all of his uh, work for free. Thank you so much, Ravi. Uh, Heart of gold, so, so altruistic, so generous in spirit. And so they'll be all up. But so those two papers, my book, Sharon's Haltzberg book, I'm sure it's very good. She's you know, a very good teacher. Um, and I wish there were a lot more, and so hopefully there will be a lot more later. There, I do have two good friends from the Shamatha Project, uh, our three-month retreats in 2007, and they are now just doing the final editing. Of It was on their initiative, and I said, OK, go for it if you think it's helpful. But it's, uh, what they've edited is a lot of the discussions and the guided meditations on Shamatha and the Four Immeasurables from the Shamatha Project. And so they're just about finished with that. And so that, so when, when, and I think like this month, next month, I think they're going to be finished. They'll send it to me, I'll look it over, and then I have a publisher in mind. I'm pretty, yeah, pretty much, I can, I th- I'm quite sure it will be published. Yeah, so that's about what we have right now. Great. And then, of course, all the teachings on Bodhicitta. And there we can say we have an extravaganza of marvelous material. And of course, all of that is very much, of course, in line with the four vegetables. So then we have a, a bounty from, you know, so many wonderful sources. Anything practice-related more? I mean, there's a good, more of a technical or a theoretical question, but... My question
1: My question is about settling the mind.
0: Settling the mind, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I have two questions, practical, both. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, one is not practical, but. Close enough. Um, the first one is about the usage of words.
0: Of words. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: So, settling the mind, we use it as a title for this practice. That's right. But in, Shamata, in all methods of shamatha, you are actually settling the mind in its natural state, aren't you? That's true. Okay. So, that's one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this, is, this is settling the mind It's its natural state and watching it happen. Okay, great. The other one is settling the mind in its natural state and watching sensations of the breath and then watching the acquired sign and then watching the counterpart sign. The other one's watching awareness, awareness, awareness and thank you, se- uh, thank you mind, settle yourself, but I'm busy. <laughs> you know? And the other one is the ringside seat like a boxing match. And here's, and on the right we have Carissa. Carissa's awareness. And on we, oh, this 500-pound gorilla, Carissa's mind. <laughs> Go for it, Carissa. <laughs> and we watch Who Wins. <laughs>
1: okay, um, so the second question. So when I'm practicing settling the mind, yeah. about half my thoughts are metaphorically big, so I can see them clearly. Mm-hmm. They're images or yeah. phrases or whatever. Right. And about the other half, uh, sometimes they're, they're too quick. So I, I can notice that something happened, but I have to stop and think what happened to be able to notice them. So in, other,
0: in other words, you can see 100% of your thoughts.
1: No, of course oh, not. But you, you just said
0: 50-50. That makes <laughs> 50 plus 50. Well, that makes 100%.
1: 100% of what I see.
0: Oh, I see. Okay.
1: <laughs> so remember when um, Ekman flashed the microexpressions? I do. And in my experience, the shorter they were, the longer it took me to be able to say what it was. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was very short, I had to replay it in my mind and freeze it, and then I could... Right. So more or less like that, so it happens too fast. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, um, is this because I am looking too much and making them bashful? Or is this because that my attention is not sharp enough? And what if I only see ripples of becoming thoughts that don't actually coagulate into what they would be. [SSSSS2]
0: Yeah, uh. so there was A, B, C, (laughs) and D is all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) And the correct answer is all of the above. Yeah, And that is, sure, this, as I think it's becoming more and more evident, perhaps, to all of you by now, the cultivation of ease, of softness, of lightness, Mm -hmm. is a real skill and you continue cultivating it all the way through to the substrate, And they say, oh, now there's another whole dimension of grasping that I need to release to go from the substrate to Rigpa, right? So this is not a little thing for Westerners. Uh, Oh, you Westerners, you have to relax. The Tibetans are great, but oh, you Westerners, oh, it's it's sentient beings, you know? And so the lightness of touch, you asked, are they just bashful? Are they skirting away because you're coming in too heavy, too heavy? And, you know, yeah, that's true, it's true. And so a lighter and lighter touch, a lighter and lighter touch. And then they they come out, and you touch them so lightly they don't skitter away. That's one point. Second point is they are very subtle, and so then it needs greater clarity. But this is just going right to the very essence of what shamatha is all about. Stability, of course, but it's that lighter and lighter touch with greater and greater precision. That deepening sense of relaxation with a heightening of acuity the soft touch almost like some I, I've had a lot of acupuncture over many many years and i tiny tension one of them was a five inch needle that the man thrust into my belly and went up right to the hilt that hurt boy there was no doubt he'd put a, a big needle in my belly that was really intense that was the most intense and then other ones they, they just barely touched the skin you're like wow did you put it in yet? You know? So it's a really subtle needle, really very thin, and they just, they tap it so lightly you hardly feel it. So you're going for the second. Very sharp, but very delicate. And it does just what it needs. Right? So like that. And the third part, what was the third part? That was a yes to. Yeah. Oh, ripples, yeah, sure. Uh, Tsongkhoba speaks about this. Yes, you're on the same frequency. You must be related or something. Um, Sure, uh, the ripples, sure. Tsongko speaks about this. And that, I I think, you see, is one of of the greats. Often when I think of something really brilliant, I think of him, because he's so brilliant. Uh, But that one is aware in the practice not only of thoughts that arise, but thoughts that are on the verge of arising. I think it's called get up, get up. They're just about to arise. And you see them even there. Before they've manifested, hello, you know, or this image, that thought, it's just kind of like. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes back down again. Yeah? So that's subtle. That's good. Yeah. Okay? Good. Okay, we'll take one theoretical one. Can I give some expe- examples of specific research studies that could be t- conducted in a contemplative observatory that would directly challenge the neocentric view? Neocentric view, just for a memory sense, is that all states of consciousness, at least for us human beings and every other creature we know that is conscious, that all possible states of consciousness arise as functions or pro- emergent properties of the brain. Okay? It's a very plausible hypothesis. Uh, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a science minded person, nor am I very advanced in my practice, so it is hard for me to imagine what could be demonstrated in a, me- in a meditation lab it wouldn't be just explained away by materialists who believe these spirit experiences are arising from the brain since my ability to understand science fell off at about the 5th grade level please explain this in terms that an old 11-year-old can grasp <laughs> very nicely phrased lovely First of all, I I wish it were the case that the scientific community, because it has such built-in remedies of skepticism, of being critical, of questioning, being really open to questioning even one's core assumptions and unquestioned beliefs, I wish it were the case that the scientific community just always lived up to that ideal, because that is very clearly the ideal of science. And apart from Buddhism, perhaps, the scientific community is without parallel in Western civilization in this regard. That is, if we think of the three Western religions, Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, none of them have built into them an ideal of skepticism. That we really, it's, it's a good thing to be skeptical of the teachings you know, of the Quran, of the Bible, of New Testament, none of them have that built in. There are very critically minded theologians There are very brilliant Christians. There are very profound contemplatives. But skepticism, questioning the assertions of one's predecessors, is not something highlighted and emphasized as an ideal in these Abrahamic religions, which tend to be much more oriented around obedience, submission, faith, belief, and therefore conformity. Western philosophy does have that ideal, it does. It just doesn't have the empirical methods that, not, that, that modern science has, and that's when modern science became modern science and broke away from being natural philosophy. Because in the very early days, the 17th century, the 18th century, natural science wasn't called natural science, it was called natural philosophy. But they gradually distanced themselves from what we call philosophers. And the basic difference, as far as I can tell... Now, there are exceptions. Ucarus uh, has brought one example to mind. But overall, philosophy doesn't have empirical means to test, or experiential means for that matter, to test its hypotheses. So, what they're very good at is a- analysis, thinking very, very intelligently, rationally, developing a position, defending it, critiquing others, writing papers and papers and books and books and books, and essentially agreeing on nothing. Scientists agree on a lot. They debate a lot, but they do agree on a lot. And one can say that's a fundamental difference. So William James, in this regard, commented. I know this is a tangent, but he he regarded as a man who I think is one of the great philosophers of the twentieth of the nineteenth century. A very good psychologist, a very deep thinker. He said, "A problem remains philosophical until we actually know something about it." and then it's no longer in the philosophical domain. It's called science. So in the 19th century, there were philosophies of atoms. Philosophers could talk about atoms and say, well, our philosophy about atoms is this. Oh, we disagree. Our philosophy is this. And then came along Rutherford, Thomson, and so forth. And now nobody makes a living saying, I'm a philosopher of atoms. Look, look in the universities. Who's a philosopher of atoms? And so the empirical method, but, again, to come back a little bit, unfortunately, people are people. Buddhists are Buddhists. Buddhists have the ideal. We've seen it from in the the Mahayana tradition. Oh, monks, and you are wise just as, you know, oh, monks, just as the wise test gold and so forth. You've probably heard it a hundred times. Test it, test it, test it. The assertions do not accept it simply out of reverence for me. Very famous. Quoted all the time in the Mahayana tradition. In the Theravada tradition, the Kalama Sutta. Do not accept something simply because your teacher says it. Tradition says it. It's the scripture. It's in, it's in tradition. Everybody says so. Everybody, everybody else says so. Don't accept it that way. Test for yourself, experientially, pragmatically. And so there we have it, from the Theravada tradition the Mahayana tradition. Not that you don't have, don't have, don't have faith, don't have belief, but do use your critical intelligence. Be constructively skeptical, and really seek to know for yourself. That is clearly a Buddhist ideal. Having said that, how many dogmatic, closed-minded, fundamentalist Buddhists are there? The answer is a lot. How many dogmatic, closed-minded scientists are there? A lot. And it's not because science sucks any more than Buddhism sucks. It's because people have mental afflictions. So this is still a response to that question. Um, I'll give you an example. Ian Stevenson, psychiatrist, head of psychiatry at the University, at the medical school at University of Virginia. Very smart, very good scientist, rigorous, open-minded, had the audacity to ask unorthodox and heretical questions. And that was, he had heard a long time ago, like 45 years ago or something like that, of children who allegedly had past life recall. They would say, Mommy, I used to be some, somebody such, such and such in the past and a weird form of psychosis. Oh, but you weren't. No, I'm your four, you're four years old. You didn't have a past. Johnny, be quiet and don't tell the neighbors. <laughs> we want to keep you at home. We don't want them to take you away. Did I tell you about my friend Konstantin in Russia? I went in the underground. I know I'm, this is a tangent on a tangent. But it's fun. About 1985, I was still a monk. And I was invited to be part of a very, very small, kind of low-level grassroots peace movement, a little peace delegation to go off to the Soviet Union. Still Soviet Union. A religious group. There was a Swami. There was a Christian. I was the Buddhist and so forth. And So we went off to Russia. And we got to, I think it was, Saint, I think it was then called Leningrad. Now St. Petersburg. We got there. And somehow the word had gotten through. Buddhists are coming. I couldn't wear my robes; I had to wear lay clothes. Mm. But so out came the underground movement of Buddhists in the Soviet Union. They were illegal; it was not one of the accepted religions. So they had to do everything like they were some kind of terrorist group, except for they weren't terrorizing anybody. They're just they're just studying, you know, Buddhism. But they came out; they learned, and they they came out. And so one of them was a fellow named Constantine. Jolly fellow, kind of chubby. And he told me, I believe in reincarnation. And I said this publicly some years back. And the Soviets, they they learned what I said. They said, You're crazy. They put me in the mental asylum because I believe in reincarnation. You're crazy. Anybody who believes in reincarnation, you're crazy. So they put him in a mental asylum. He got lots and lots of therapy. I don't know what he got, but he got whatever they had. They threw the kitchen sink at him. They threw everything they had at him. And after when they finished, he said, I still believe in reincarnation. (laughs) 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 So they said, then you're hopeless. But you're not dangerous. So get out of here, but you're crazy. So we'll have to give you a lifelong stipend. So from that time on, he could practice dharma for free, (laughs) courtesy of the Soviet government. (laughs) So Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia had the audacity to ask a crazy question. And that is, why don't we investigate these children that claim to have remembering past lives? And he and then a, a group of colleagues around the world, not just in Virginia, but people highly trained. I know one of them, PhD from Harvard. He was up in Canada, his team in Virginia. They did research all over the world, the Near East, in Asia, in North America, all over. And the research went on for 40 years. And he compiled his, his findings. He passed away just a few years ago, but in this book I mentioned earlier, oh, where reincarnation and biology intersect. Because after, after 20 years, he wrote a book, 20 cases suggestive of reincarnation. He said, I don't believe in reincarnation, but I don't see any other way to explain these 20 cases because he threw out hundreds that could be explained in other ways. He said, oh, they saw it on television, there's this, there's this, this, there's this, this. Throw it out, it's just child fantasy, no problem. He found after 20 years of research or so, 20 cases, said, I don't, they were accurate, accurate statements, and the child had no way of knowing that that we could find out. And so I don't know how you explain it except for reincarnation. I don't believe in reincarnation, but I don't know how to explain that either. So there it is. Here's 20 cases. So he sat sat on the fence after 20 years. Then he did another 20 years. And he wrote this book, compiling 40 years of research. And he said, now I have no choice. I now believe in reincarnation. (laughs) The evidence is too compelling. There are too many cases. Even other carryovers, people remembering the bardo, they didn't call it bardo, they have another name, Birthmarks carrying over from lifetime to lifetime. The evidence is now, I I can't help it, I'm sorry, but now I believe in reincarnation. And he's passed away. It'd be interesting if he reincarnates to come back to that lab. Um, (laughs) And so there's more. I've met a number of them. They're very bright, they're open-minded. The scientific community is doing a valiant job of simply ignoring all of their research. Just ignoring it, not refuting it, not saying, oh, it's faulty and here's how you can improve it. That would be a scientist I would admire. I say, we don't believe your research. Why? Because your research methods are faulty, and this is how you should have done it. Try that, and we'll look at it again. There's a scientist. I say, ah, that's what I love about science. You found fault in the method. It was sloppy. It was fuzzy. And you critiqued it. You showed the soft spot, and you showed how it can be improved. You don't believe in any of this, but you show how it could be improved so they could do it again. They didn't do that. So I saw one evaluation of his work, And all the person said was, you wasted your whole life. That was his critique of Ian Stevenson. You wasted your whole life. It was all a waste of time. Oh, yeah, I've heard religious fundamentalists say the same thing. So that's unfortunate. So if we have a contemplative observatory and we come up with some amazing results, will there be people in the scientific community that will just be valiant in their tenacious ability to ignore whatever we come up with? The answer is yes or to explain it away in one way or another, optical illusion, hallucination, they'll come up with something. Religious fundamentalists always find a way of explaining away what they don't, what, what doesn't fit their dogma. I know one of, one of the sweetest people I've ever met, I think I keep the person anonymous, incredibly sweet, fundamentalist Christian. Everything in the Bible is literally true. 7,000-year-old universe. And I asked this person, what about dinosaur bones? Because all the species, of course, don't, don't change. God created them exactly as they were, put them on the ark. Everything was just, that, that's just history. Everything is exactly, because God said it. The Bible is God's word. God doesn't lie. He's not mushy. He just says what he thinks. And he's omniscient. And so I said, what about dinosaur bones? And I don't recall any dinosaurs on the ark. What about dinosaur bones? The scientists planted them. <laughs> what about carbon dating? Mysterious are the ways of the Lord. In other words, it doesn't matter what you come up with. People who are close-minded, dogmatic, will find a way. And everybody else outside laughs, but the people inside don't laugh, because when you're inside that bubble... Yeah, mysterious are the ways of the Lord. I mean, it said so in the Bible, mysterious are the ways of the Lord. And if people are disbelievers, God may give them red herrings, you know? Mysterious are the ways of the Lord. And it makes really good sense with inside the bubble. And many people, many of them not scientists, live inside the bubble of scientific materialism. And anything that doesn't fit, they'll just find a way. It doesn't matter what. But... There are many, many scientists who are open-minded. There are many Buddhists who are open-minded, Christians who are open-minded. And so, now I'll answer the question. <laughs> and that is, just to have people achieving shamatha and then coming out radiantly and speak. It was, it was true what they said. It's blissful, it's luminous, it's non-conceptual. And then we come over to them with symbols when they're in deep meditation. We go, wah, 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 right? wah. So they're in there. Say, wow, you've really achieved shamatha. Does that mean, you know, that that does it, the neurocentric view is wrong? No, it doesn't. It just means that's a very cool, emergent property of the brain. So it doesn't prove anything. It's just like, well, okay, shamat is cool. Uh, What about realizing emptiness? No. Still, it could be neuroscientific. it's empty brain, but still everything comes from the empty brain. So, there's an experiment that I've laid out in detail in my book, Mind and the Balance, under the rubric, Alaya Project. Alaya as in substrate. And the source of the um, experiment is simply from Buddhaghosa, the Magga. And it's also inspired by a conversation I had with young Tanuramichi, the same one who spent 22 years in concentration camp. And then I asked him, if one has not achieved the higher jhanas, the first, second, third, fourth jhanas, I mean, incredibly deep states of samadhi, just access. Is it possible, if one really puts one mind, one's mind to it, is it possible to access previous lives?" He says, yes. Yes. Said, oh, okay. Buddha Gosa speaks about achieving the higher jhanas, and that's really quite formidable. But, if pre- accurate past life recall can be gained by simply resting in the substrate and then performing some exercises, then Okay, how about that? So, as time is running out here, you can just, just read, I mean, look, look in Mind in the Balance under Alaya Project, but to make it really, really short, invite the scientists in. Invite open-minded, but very critical, skeptical, open-minded scientists who are just interested in the truth, but are not already committed to the Buddhist view and not absolutely close-minded committed to the materialistic view. In other words, a good scientist. Invite them to the party from the very beginning and say, look, we have all that research from Ian Stevenson, but you blow it off. It's not a controlled experiment. You're just finding kids here and there who have recollections and you can always say, that's more anthropology than hard science and blah, 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 and you can blow it off and that's what you people have done. Here's a controlled experiment. Let's get 15, 20 people of achieve shamatha, first of all, in your contemplative observatory. Get those. And then we give them an experiment. We give them a task. And this basically is all inspired by Buddha Gosa. And this was done apparently many, many times. He's just summarizing what had been done for centuries. And that is, you get a person, whether it's the fourth jhana, as he describes, or whether it's simply resting in the substrate consciousness. But there you are in this concert hall with fantastic acoustics, and you've got a laser, so I'm mixing metaphors here, but you can still follow. You've got the laser of your attention, and you're given a task with this team of scientists, and they're going to come up with a number of questions about your past that they will have checked out independently of any of the meditators' knowing. They will have checked with loved ones, blah, 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 to find out factual statements, truths, of each of the meditators' lives. Uh, by checking whatever they want to do, but they'll do it all without the meditators knowing about it. But they're going to get some facts. And then they're going to come in and then they say, OK, uh, we now have a fact. And we're going to see whether you can recall it. And I'm going to simplify it, because you can imagine this can be a bit complex, but not, not unfeasible. And the fact is, can right now, can you remember what you had for lunch one week ago? Right now, just can you tell me what you have for lunch? Most people would probably say, no, I had something really tasty over there. But what it was, exactly what was it? Unless you eat the same thing and so forth. So let's imagine you eat a very diet, and you say, no, I, I can't remember that. Okay, good. Well, go in. Because we didn't think you could remember it, but, but actually we know, because we checked. So now go into your samadhi. Go into shamatha go into that quiet, open, luminous pl- space, take the laser pointer of your attention and direct it one week ago to lunch and see what you come up with. There should be no noise, no static, nothing in between. You should be able to simply and where, where the memory stored of what you had for lunch a week ago in the substrate consciousness. So it's just going into your hard drive with a laser and just... So pinpoint lunch one week ago today and direct your attention to that and see what comes up. And then report. And either you're right or you're wrong. If you're wrong, well, I didn't, that, that's not very promising. Can't even remember what you had to lunch a week ago. But if you couldn't remember it in your ordinary state, you go in and you come out. Oh, I, I, I went in and I saw this. I just tapped in. I got the memory. And it was really easy. I mean, the, the, the up. Here part of my plate, this is what I had, here part of the plate, this part of the plate. Over here I had this, and I had this, and that's what I had for lunch. Because I just picked up the image, and that's what was looking up at me, appearing to me at lunch a week ago. And you go check, check, check. Oh, you got it 100% right. Good for you. You're not going to get a Nobel Prize for that, but good for you. That's lunch. And now I'm going to speed this up real quickly, okay? And I'm going to make it simple. I'm going to keep it to lunch. Now, it could be all kinds of things, but I'm going to keep it at lunch, okay? And imagine this person has monitored what you had for lunch and has found that. So that Obviously, that's not realistic, but you get the drift. Okay, you good. That's what you picked it up. You got 100% accuracy for one week ago. Good. Go back in. What did you have for lunch one month ago? One month ago today, what was for lunch? I don't know. Go in. Come back. This. 100% accurate. Oh, okay, good. Then we're on a roll here remember what I had for lunch a month ago, that's not so easy. I mean, who could do that? But you can. You, OK, well, you're, you're, this, doesn't prove, this doesn't disprove the neurocentric view at all. It just shows, wow, you're really tapping into memory in a very cool way. Good. Go back a year. What, what, what for lunch one year ago today? What for lunch? If the person at any point starts blowing it, then maybe the experiment's over. OK, OK, well, nice try. No gold medal. But one year ago today, this is what I had. I tapped into the same database. Sub- everything's stored there in the substrate. And this is what I had for lunch. 100%, excellent, good for you. 10 years ago, what did you have for lunch? And I know that is, you only ask questions for which you know the right answer. 10 years ago, what was for lunch? 100%. Oh, well, you're really on a roll. You really do have access to your database, don't you? That's quite impressive. It still doesn't refute anything about the neuroscientific view. It just shows that you're using your brain in an extremely effective way. And you're tapping into, if memories are really stored into the brain, neurocentric view, then it's gotten really good. Okay, um, the person in question is 50 years old. What did you have for lunch 47 years ago? The three year old eats different kinds of food, and that's just mother's milk, right? Now, Wow, that's impressive. 100%. Because we know what you had for lunch 47 years ago. Very 100%. That's really impressive. Good. Okay, you're 50 years old, right? Okay. Uh, 52 years ago, what did you have for lunch today? Today, 52 years ago. This person's 50 years old. What did you have for lunch 52 years ago? Uh Here's what I had for lunch, but the odd thing was, I was looking at my hands, and they were the hands of a very old man. And the man in question was eating his beans and his rice, very well cooked, because his name is Petro, Petro Gonzalez, And he lives in Argentina, and his wife has just died, but his daughter is taking care of him, grandchildren all over the place. He's eating, and he's a retired carpenter. That's, that's who I was, and that was, and by the way, this is what I had for lunch this is my address, this is my work, this is how many children I had. This is my wife, she died three years ago. And that's what I had for lunch. Good, scientists, go check. Check, Buenos Aires. Was there Pedro Gonzalez, who died such and such years, 52 years ago, 51 years ago? We had this wife, those children, and don't worry about the beans and rice. Pass on that one. But did you get the Pedro Gonzalez right? right? So, if so, the neurocentric view has blown. It's blown. Assuming this guy has no way in, in court, beyond all reasonable doubt, this guy had no way of knowing Pedro Gonzalez, with his wife, and tell me something personal that only your family knows, that only your family, only your daughter and you knew. Tell me something that only your daughter, who's taking care of you, only you knew. Tell me something. Oh, yeah. Um, I gave her the diamond ring from my wife, blah, blah, blah. Check it. Okay. So make it ironclad. That would indicate, if this happens, that the memories were never stored in the brain. The brain was simply the access to them. Memories are stored in the substrate. Substrate carries on from lifetime to lifetime. Do that with one person do that for 10 people, do that for 20 people, and you've just seen the world change. And the neurocentric view will look as antiquated and as flat as the geocentric view looks to us now. That the the sky contains 3,000 stars, and it's all about us because they're decorations for planet Earth in the center of the universe. It looks kind of funny. And so does the neurocentric view kind of look. I mean, it gets so tiresome to refute from my perspective, because it just seems so silly. But a lot of people still take it seriously. And if it were just a mistake, big deal. But it so hampers, it so devastatingly hampers the whole vision of human flourishing, the possibility of enlightenment, trying to find the true causes of suffering. It so devastatingly hampers that, and then locks us into the notion that we're biological robots determined by chemistry, and so forth. So it's dehumanizing, demoralizing, and takes away any foundation for any really profound, radically transformative spiritual life. That's why I keep on beating up on scientific materialism so much. Not that it's so smart, that it's so toxic and it's silly. Voilà, well, so enjoy your dinner.